And if you have a Bible, you can open with me to Galatians chapter 5. If you don't, it's printed in the bulletin. And if you don't have a bulletin, they're on the back table. And also when you grab a bulletin, you can grab either uh, bread and wine or bread and juice from the table there for communion later. Be ready for that. Just uh, one word on communion. We've started to uh, pre-package the, the elements there. They're, they're in you know, the little salsa cups. Uh, so sorry, no salsa. I know some of us would prefer that. That's a joke, probably a little bit irreverent joke. Forgive me for that. <laughs> I think most of us uh, like salsa perhaps more than bread or even wine, but uh, the, the truth of communion of far surpasses all of those things. Galatians chapter 5. Last week we looked at chapter 2 and the story that Paul tells in his letter of how he and Peter got into it in front of the whole church. Because Peter was losing sight that God's grace that has been extended in Christ Jesus has gone to the Gentiles now. And the way that Peter was behaving, was communicating, probably pretty unintentionally, was communicating to the Gentiles that they had to do something more to win God's favor than what they had already done. And this great truth that it is grace that leads us to God and it is grace that transforms our lives is the truth that Paul is most concerned that the church in Galatia and really all of the churches understand first and foremost because our propensity in all of life is to think that we need to get things together, our life together before we can come to God. And then the second falsehood that we believe is that once we have come to God and grace has led us to God, that now it's up to us to change our behavior. But Paul explains very clearly throughout this, this letter that it is grace that leads us to God, that calls us to God. And it is also grace that keeps us in Christ, and more than that, transforms us. He explains that very clearly in chapter 3. He says, some of you think that grace brought you here and now it's up to you, but I say to you, grace is what sanctifies you. Grace is what changes you. And many of us have experienced the change that happens when we come to Christ and we're excited for the faith that we have and this new relationship that we've experienced and the fellowship we have with others and the, the knowledge we're gaining with God. And then we come to a few bumps in the road and we think, where is God in all of this? And the problem Paul is explaining to this church is that God hasn't left us. We need to be transformed again. We need to be renewed. We need to be refreshed in our faith, in our trust and understanding 
that we can run for a time full on. It's like running a sprint when you need to run a marathon. We can run full on for a time and we can have an appearance of doing really good things. But all of us will come to the point in our Christian life, our Christian walk, where we hit the, the wall, where we run out of energy, where we have to walk for a little while and we say, we realize this isn't working quite like I thought it was going to work. And Paul needs us to be reminded that it is God's grace that meets you in that place and says, I'm going to walk with you for a season. He's never met us. He's never left us, I mean. But we need to be met again in that place to be reminded that it's God's grace that continues to transform us and change us. Chapter 5, verse 1, which is the key verse for today, says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, this is a confusing verse. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom Christ has set you free. Don't submit again, therefore, to a yoke of slavery. And here's what happens in the Christian life after we've run the sprint and we've hit the wall. Most of us are like the Israelites were when God rescued them out of slavery. Now, we're getting ready to go into that whole story, so I'm not going to go too much of that. But the Israelites are now re released from slavery, miraculously delivered from bondage in Egypt, seeing miracle after miracle of God's protection and provision and power over the, the Egyptians. And yet they come to the wilderness, and in Numbers 11, we read this fascinating account that they're grumbling and they're saying, man, life wasn't so bad back in Egypt. The fresh fruits and vegetables were good. The fish was good. Maybe we, we should just go back there. It was better than this wilderness wandering that we're on now. It's the time that we come to the end of the sprint and realize that we, we need to keep going for the marathon. And it's the point that we also need to come into the realization that we can't change ourselves by our own power enough to truly live into the calling that God has placed on our lives. And all of us, when we come to that place or those places, it's really multiple places in life, need to be reminded that it is God's grace that continues to provide for us, protect us. And we've said that this this grace that leads us and transforms us is part of a, a gospel culture that needs to define who we are as a church. 
And when it defines who we are as a church, it also defines how we interact with the community around us, both as a church, but also as individuals living in the place that God has put us. So part of living according to what Paul's saying in the letter of Galatians, not submitting again to the yoke of slavery, is creating this gospel culture in the church that looks at the city around us and says, I love this city. Not all of the things that are done in this city, because many of the things that are done in this city look more like the works of the flesh that we read about earlier from Galatians 5, later in 5. And the selfish ambition and the willing to take from others for our own benefit, for our own gain. But I want to look at this place, this city, this community, this culture, wherever God has put us and say, God has called me to be an ambassador of his love for this place. Dick Hoffman, my mentor, called this being gospel positive and city positive. My, my mentor, Dick Hoffman, called this being gospel positive and city positive. It's a, it's a way of checking whether our faith is small or whole. If our faith, when our faith is small, we have a tendency to circle the wagons, to put up a hedge of protection, to create the, 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 the cast, the, the vision as being us against them. But when our faith is full, we can look at the city around us, the culture around us, even a culture like the Roman culture that Paul was speaking into, living in, that was incredibly hostile toward Christian belief, as well as the predominant Jewish culture, which was also hostile toward the Christian belief, belief in Christ, and say, even if you throw at me your worst persecution, I'm going to recognize that God has called me called us as a church to be ambassadors of Christ's peace in this place. That we recognize, as Paul points out in both uh, in both Romans and First P- and, and Peter points out in First Peter, that God has put the authorities in a city there for the benefit of the city, even if they aren't Christians. And we can say that God is in this place and at work in this place. Now, very practically, that means that we can look on a place, look on a city, and not just look at the faults of the city around us, but we can also look at the strengths of the city around us. We should be able to look at the city and do an assessment and say, these are things that are commendable about this place. That there are many people with a heart to serve and provide for those who are homeless, for those who are poor. It doesn't mean that the way that we do that is always the most effective. And oftentimes we do things out of good intent and good heart that are, that are counterproductive. But still, there is that heart for the homeless. That We can look on the city and say there is a desire overall in this city to not oppress the poor. Even though oftentimes, individually, we make choices, people make choices, 
that are self-serving. And even those in power and positions of authority do make choices that are self-serving. We can look around the city and say, this is a beautiful place, San Diego is, with beautiful weather. And these are things that are gifts from God. And the recreation that we enjoy is a good and beautiful thing. But we can also critique our city. And, and sometimes the things that are the greatest strengths are also the greatest weakness. We can say that as a culture, our city worships worships the creation, worships nature, worships the satisfaction and excitement we get from recreation. We live here for pleasure, not necessarily the pleasure we read about in Galatians 5 that talked about all kinds of sexual temptation, although that is true as well. And San Diego is one of the worst places for sex trafficking in all of the country and probably not too good on the list of of world places. But even extending that list out to the pleasure of, of doing good things and when good things, good things can become idols, the things we worship. We spend time outside so that we think that we can commune with God, but in fact, some of the time, those things draw us away from God. I'm going to read the rest of this story. You can try to think about that more. I encourage you to. What are the things in the city that we can commend the city for? And what are the things that are the the sins, the weaknesses? Good preaching, by the way, identifies those things and calls out, convicts the heart. It commends on the one hand, the one th- the good things, but it also specifically convicts and calls out the things that, uh, that are weaknesses in the place. You can evaluate my preaching based on that. Now, we talked about a gra- gospel culture. A gospel culture, grace leads and grace transforms. We can never stop the race, stop looking to grace, look to our own work. I want to introduce something I didn't mention last week, but I, by specifically saying it, but I, I did by practice. And that is that a gospel culture prioritizes stories over systems. A gospel culture prioritizes stories over systems. Now, that doesn't mean any story. We're not talking about all kinds of stories out there. It recognizes that stories have a greater power to transform our lives than systems do. This has New Year's ramifications. How many of us have gotten new planners, have established new practices, created checklists, check boxes? We have. We absolutely have. Good things are systems. Systems oftentimes are very helpful. I'm not saying that systems are bad. One of the things we get out of the story we're going to look at today is the systematic explanation of the doctrine of justification. Justification says that we are called righteous as Christians, not because of how good we are, not because of all the good things we do. We are called righteous or justified by God based on this central event in fact 
that Christ died for sinners, taking the penalty for sin on himself and giving his righteousness to us. It is very helpful for us to have this simple, systematic explanation of what justification is in the Bible. Justified, justification, for many of us, when we think of that word, we think more like, well, he was justified in doing this because somebody else did this thing to him. But we are justified in doing this. And that gets close to the way that the biblical language, the Greek language uses it, but it's not quite there. Justification in the biblical language means that a judge has declared somebody not guilty. It is declarative by some outside entity. Declared not guilty. That's why Paul says we wait for this, not that we live into this, or that we do this, or that we accomplish this. Systems are important, and they're helpful, and we need to understand this about justification. Likewise, we should understand that sanctification... Sanctification is the continuing progressive improvement that God makes in our lives, making us more and more right, more and more living into the calling that God has put on us, that we're better and better people. Sanctification is the combined working of God and us, our efforts toward this. And it's a work that God continues to do. Let me go back to the beginning. It's a work that God continues to do by His grace in our lives. So while we participate in it, we still, our primary participation needs to begin with understanding that it's the grace that continues to motivate us, to transform us in our lives, to transformative power. But the priority of story over systems is that we understand that these systems aren't just a list of to-dos or checkboxes. The priority of story over systems tells us that God himself entered into this creation and has experienced the similar struggles and difficulties and challenges that we have and can sympathize with us. The stories tell us that we aren't the first ones to tread here, to be tempted to go back into slavery because we feel like things were were better there. The stories remind us that the process that we have in living into becoming Christ-like, becoming Christians... It's a process that other people have gone through as well and have wrestled with. It's a process that's not clearly defined all the time. The struggles may be different from one person to the next, but all of us have struggles. It's a process that we, when we think we have it all figured out, like like marriage, when we think we have our spouse figured out, that's when we realize, oh, there's something so much more here. I had no idea that I was missing. 
And when we understand these stories have been told and recorded and more than just told, but they've been lived. Our spirit, our heart is enlivened. It's caught up in this excitement. It helps us to be the ambassadors of God's peace and his grace to others. I'm going to read the story now. And then we'll look at just a couple of uh, implications of the story calls uh, for us and how we should can be and should be transformed. Go back with me to verse 21. We're going to read of a, kind of a troubling story. It's one of the most difficult stories in all of the Bible when it's recorded back in Genesis initially. And then also repeated here by Paul, but we have some better understanding of why it's in Genesis when Paul explains its use here. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. We read about this earlier. According to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. You know what an allegory is? I assume most people do, but it's worth repeating. An allegory is a story told that we would understand some other principle based on the story. So we're not called to do the same thing that the story tells us, but understand it allegorically so that we can do something else that that compares to it. Allegory. This may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Let me pause for a second. Mount Sinai, if you're not familiar with it, was the place that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments that he would take and give to the people of Israel that would be foundational for the law of this new nation. You shall do these things, you shall not do these things. Mount Sinai is the law that God that that Paul's been talking about so much in this letter, the law. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. To the present Jerusalem, that is the earthly Jerusalem of Paul's day. For she is in in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. That is the heavenly Jerusalem. The Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Now in this sense, sense, no evidence that Paul was familiar with the, the philosophy of Plato, but Plato, of course, talked about the physical world being a shadow of the real spiritual world, the greater spiritual world. And in some places, Plato gets things wrong. But in this place, he gives a helpful illustration. That is, that the things that we see on earth, that is, the heavenly Jerusalem, is but an incomplete and imperfect shadow of the heavenly Jerusalem. So, so Paul is pointing us to the heavenly Jerusalem 
above where she is our mother. And he says, for it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be, be more than those of the one who has a husband. That's worth pointing out just a little bit of the backstory that comes from Genesis. Abraham is married to Sarai, or Abram is married to Sarai. They can't have children. They're in their 80s, 90s. They cannot have children. But God gives them this promise that he would give them children. Years and years go by and still no children. And so Abram and Sarai decide, well, we're going to help this along. And Sarai gives her servant, her slave, to Abram as a wife. That's why it says here, then those, the one who has a husband. So, so Hagar becomes Abram's wife and they have a child together and that child's name is Ishmael. So that's Hagar and Ishmael. We'll tell more of that story in a minute. But, but you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. So God says, no, that's not what I said. I'm going to give you and Sarai who become Abraham and Sarah, when uh, later, later in the story, Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to give you a child. That's what I said. And that child comes and his name is Isaac. You are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. I think I read that right, but let me make sure I did because I, I need to emphasize. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. Think about Galatians 5, flesh and spirit, works of flesh, work and spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Now, if you're familiar with the story, if you're not familiar with that story from Genesis, it's a multi-part story. For Abraham has this child with Hagar named Ishmael, and Abraham loves Ishmael. He cares for him. He raises him. There's some fear right at the beginning, even before Ishmael is born, that, that Hagar experiences because, uh, because Sarah becomes jealous of Hagar and Hagar flees. But, but she, she's met by God in the wilderness and, and she comes back and, and, and 
Abraham raises his child. This child is, is probably about 14 years old when finally Isaac is born. Ishmael is probably 14 years old when Isaac is born. The story goes on, though, when Isaac is weaned from uh, nursing, which in those days was, was after uh, two or three years sometimes. And so when, when Ishmael is now more like 16 or 17, there's another conflict that arises when Isaac is weaned where, uh, where, where Ishmael expresses a jealousy of Isaac and, and, and a, a, a hostility to him. We don't have a lot of details of what that is. And Sarah comes to Abraham and says, you need to send them out away. Send them off. Cast them off. And Abraham is troubled by this. He resists it, but God comes to Abraham and says, you need to send them off. Cast off the slave woman and her son. And it's, it's like the story of Isaac. When God tells Abraham, Abraham, take Isaac up to that mountain and offer Isaac as a sacrifice. The one that I promised you, the one you waited so long for, the one I finally delivered to you, take that son up there. It's, it's almost a, a, an exact parallel of a, a strikingly surprising instruction that God gives to Abraham. And it's important to note that that's not an instruction that God gives to any of us, either of those. Cast them off. And in fact, all of us, if we are Christians, should come to this story and be put off and unsettled by the story of God telling Abraham to send this woman and this uh, teenager out with very little provisions. But it's helpful to understand that God is continually testing Abraham and God is speaking directly to Abraham audibly not just by his word that's recorded for us that we need to interpret, but God is giving specific instructions to Abraham audibly. And God is doing this for a purpose that Paul explains to us. That it is necessary that we would understand the allegorical interpretation, understanding of what it means to cast off the slave woman and her offspring. He says, I want you to think about this. End of verse 29. I didn't highlight it quite the way I wanted to when I read it. So also it is now that just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. What does that mean? Allegorically speaking, it means that when we try to do good works in order to earn God's favor, when we look to the law of God as the reason for why God should love us, why things should go well in our lives, We are acting like Abraham did because Abraham Abraham was given a command and a promise from God. 
but it focused more on the promise. He said, I will give you this child and his descendants will be more numerous than the stars, more numerous than the grains of sand. God gave Abraham this promise and implicit in the promise was, you need to believe my promise. That's the command. You need to believe my promise. Already Abraham has been commended. It says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's been wrestling with this belief and action all through his life. And over and over again, Abraham keeps saying, I've got a better plan. I've got an idea of how this can work. This seems to not be going according to promise right now. Let me interject my way of solving this problem. And anyone who knows me knows that I delight in problem solvers. Anybody who's worked for me, if you come to me with a problem and you don't have some suggestion of how the problem is going to be solved, I'm going to send you away and say, come back to me with a suggestion for solving the problem. As human beings, we are made creative. We should be problem solvers. God has made us this way to live into it. But there's one place where we need to be careful about applying and and, and implementing our creativity. And that's when God has given us a promise and a command. We are not called to be problem solvers by another way. Because it always leads to problems. Let Let me give you three problems that it leads to. And you see this in this story of Galatians, in this story of Genesis and how Abraham keeps looking to his own problem solving instead of believing God's promise. The first one is that, well, here's the command that he gives us. He says, cast cast off the slave woman and her son. Cast off the slave woman and her son. What does that mean for us? It doesn't mean we send some woman off to to beg and to, to be rescued. By the way, God rescues that woman in the wilderness, Hagar and Ishmael comes miraculously, rescues them, makes them into great nations, provides for Ishmael a wife, and all these other things. God provides just like he did with Isaac, so he's not a hard-hearted God in all this. He provides. But what does it mean for us to cast off the slave woman? Paul's explaining throughout the whole letter of Galatians that if you keep looking to the law to define who you are, to mark yourself off as followers of God, you will never be able to live up to it. It will be like you're always running back, not just to provide for the slave woman, but to the slavery itself. Like the Jews identified their cultural place their place with God by this one central fact that they were children of Abraham. That they were children of Abraham. But Paul's saying you need to take this a little bit further. Don't just ask, are you a child of Abraham? Ask, are you a daughter of Hagar or a daughter of Sarah? Are you a son of Hagar or a son of Sarah? Which one do you identify with? Because if you are not able to completely cast off the Hagar and Ishmael, you will never be able to fully live into the calling that God has for you. And allegorically speaking, 
Paul is saying, if you keep looking to the law and the way that you are doing good and the way that you're being obedient to God as, a, as, a, as the reason that you are justified before God, that you are loved by God, you will never have enough to finish the race. Now, here are the three things that we're prone to do and that are indicators that you're probably looking more to the law and putting yourself back in slavery and not living into the freedom that Christ is. The first one is that you count up how many good deeds you do and you compare those against how many failings you have. And you look at that list And you say to God, like you would to Santa Claus, look, God, I'm on the good list. You need to give me the things that I want. These are the things that assure me that you have transformed me and changed me instead of of focusing on the things that God has forgiven you for. And out of gratitude for God saying, I don't love these things anymore. There's something far greater. Now another sign that we're doing this is evident in the story we told earlier that Paul and Peter are in conflict in the city, of, in this place and in this culture over this issue of circumcision, which we don't need to get into a lot, but Paul and the whole group of apostles got together in Jerusalem and they agreed circumcision and food laws are no more. Not by their revelation, but by God's revelation. You don't have to be circumcised or eat certain foods if to be a Christian. If you're a Jew and choose to continue to do those things, that's fine, but don't make the Gentiles do those things. And here's a sign that the people weren't getting it in Paul's day, is that when those groups got together, some of those Jews couldn't eat with the Gentiles now because they weren't comfortable with the whole thing. They couldn't grasp that this thing now that had been a defining thing for them culturally is now simply a cultural preference, a way to do things that God has not instructed them to require others to do. And for us, so it is now. So it is now if we create certain cultural preferential structures with the church and with our homes and with our communities. And we say, if you don't do these things that aren't biblical, that aren't explained in the Bible, if you don't do those things, you can't be a part of Jesus's church. We are failing to cast off the slave woman again. Wait till this plane goes off. Now, one thing that I'd like to explore some other time that's just fascinating in this whole thing is that did you notice? Did you notice some irony here? And that is that, that the Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt, and Mount Sinai was the place of deliverance. It was the place that the Israelites gathered, and God gave them the law and they made promises. It was a symbol of their freedom and not of their slavery. Did you see that? It was a symbol of their freedom and not their slavery back in Egypt. But the very thing that is a symbol of their freedom has become now 
the object of their slavery. Hagar is Mount Sinai, it says in verse 25. Hagar is Mount Sinai. And why is that? It's because the law that was given out at Mount Sinai was good. It's still good for us. But the law was still nothing more than a a school tutor, a guardian, an elementary principal, a way of protecting a child from going across the street or not going across the street. You may not cross the street, you say to a two-year-old. Even though when they get to be 10, you change that. You say, look both ways before you cross the street. And when they are 18, you hope that they still have enough sense to cross the street, but you don't tell them either way. The law, the law apart from Christ is nothing more than a guardian. It's nothing more than a guardian and a set of rules that protects particularly the circumcision and food laws. But Paul extends that out to the rest of the law to be careful that you're not looking to the law for your, 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 uh, your, your assurance. So the things that are indicators that we look for, to the law first uh, to, for, for our assurance, the second one is that we fail to see and identify what are the cultural preferences and be putting those away from us so that the church can be Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, Paul points out in this letter. The third thing that we do that is an indicator that we have not cast off the slave woman is that we don't extend grace to others freely. We count ourselves better than others. We're constantly in this game of comparison, me against them. Well, I'm better than them, so I'm probably in good graces with God. If we don't extend grace, it's usually because we have not received grace. And most of us base that on our human relationships. How much grace did you receive from your parents? How much grace have you received from your friends? How much grace have you received in your place of work or in your other relationships? But when we fail to forgive others, when we fail to extend grace to others, we are running back to the slavery. We are trying to prove to ourselves and to God that we're good enough. And the answer that Paul tells us isn't necessarily to do all these things. The answer Paul tells us is to cast off the slave woman and her child. The ways that you have tried to solve the problems that are not according to the promises of God. He points out that these things symbolize two covenants. The covenant that God gave to Mount Sinai was... I will be your God and you will be my people. Do these things. You shall, you shall not. But the covenant that God fulfills in Jesus, gives in Jesus, he explains this in Jeremiah chapter 31. A new covenant I am giving you is filled not with you shall and you shall not. 
It's filled over and over with I will. In that day, I will put the law on your heart. In that day, no one will need to say to his brother or sister, uh, follow the Lord because everyone will follow me. In that day, I will, God says, I will, I will, I will. That was, the, that was what God was doing with Abraham as well. I will give you a son. I will do this. I will do that. And Abraham and Sarah keep doing these other things. Just like we have a tendency to do those other things. And when we do those other things, we're submitting again to a yoke of slavery. Now, the new covenant has both a now and not yet aspect of it. There's still the need to tell others about Christ, but there's a now aspect that God has written this law on our hearts. He has shown us what true love is in offering himself on the cross and dying for our sins. He has fulfilled the I wills by coming to live the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died so that we can be united with him. To live into the new covenant is to believe the promises of God, the I wills. And here's the last thing I'm going to challenge you to do is to know the promises of God. Dawson Trotman was the founder of the ministry, the Navigators, which started as a ministry in the Navy uh, during World War II because uh, Dawson Trotman, the founder of it, shared the gospel with somebody on a ship and he became a Christian and then he shared the gospel with somebody else and he wanted to learn what it was to become a Christian and Dawson Trotman, uh, he came to Dawson and he said, will you teach him how to be a Christian? And Dawson Trotman said, no, I want you to teach him the things I taught you, the principle of multiplication we see in 2 Timothy 2.2, things you've entrusted, I haven't, you, have it been entrusted to you, entrust to other faithful servants. Dawson Trotman was known to go up onto a mountain and pray for hours every morning and he focused his prayers and his knowledge and his study on one thing in particular that I've seen has been true of so many faithful ministers of the gospel. And I wish I could say that this was more characteristic of even my own life. And so I'm challenging myself on this as well. He would focus on knowing the promises of God in Scripture. If I asked you right now, name just five promises of God in Scripture. What would be the top five that you'd name? Can you extend that out to 10, 20, 40, 100? The promises of God are throughout Scripture, but I think most of us are pretty anemic because a lot of those promises are in the Old Testament. A lot of those promises need to be understood in the context. We're anemic when it comes to the promises of God. Know the promises of God and pray the promises of God. Because God's word is filled far more with the I wills than the you shalls. But most of us think Christian life is defined with you shall, you shall not, you shall not. And when that happens, our gospel ministry, our witness to others is hindered because we're doing it by our own problem solving. Having a child with a slave woman instead of believing God is faithful to deliver his on his promises. What are the ways that you're holding on? Cast out the slave woman. Believe the promises of God. Let's pray.
But Lord, we are so guilty of not knowing your promises. Will you draw our hearts to Jeremiah 31? To other places in the scripture, the story of Genesis where you're making promise after promise. That we would know and believe these promises and not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. May we live into that freedom more and more every day. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.